This is John Livesey, author of The Sale is in the Tale, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where every Friday I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book. This show has been named one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, and has millions of downloads and listeners in over 185 countries. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, connect and message me on LinkedIn, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And to make sure you never miss an episode, you have a few options. The best way is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, or go to marketingbookpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications. Or if you're on LinkedIn, find the Marketing Book Podcast page and click the subscribe button and maybe meet some of your fellow listeners. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome John Livesey to talk about his book, The Sales in the Tale, published by Tradecraft Books. John Livesey, a.k.a. The Pitch Whisperer, is a keynote speaker on storytelling as a sales tool, marketing, negotiation, and persuasion. As a keynote speaker, John shares the lessons learned from his award-winning career at Condé Nast to teach sales teams how to become irresistible so they are magnetic to their ideal clients. His TED Talk has over 1 million views. His other books are Better Selling Through Storytelling, The Essential Roadmap to Becoming a Revenue Rock Star, with a foreword by Tim Sanders, past guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, The Successful Pitch, Conversations About Going from Invisible to Investable, with a foreword by Judy Robinette, also a past guest on the Marketing Book Podcast, and The Seven Most Powerful Selling Secrets, Soar Your Way to Success with Integrity, passion, and joy. John is a guest lecturer on how to leverage the power of storytelling in sales at several universities, including the University of Texas at Austin, home of the Fighting Longhorns, the Pepperdine Graduate Business School, and the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Sweet home, Chicago. And interesting fact, he was once a lifeguard. John, congratulations on the sales in the tail, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. I thought you were going to congratulate me on being a lifeguard in my youth. <laughs> you were. <laughs> yeah. So be honest, your favorite TV show, is it Baywatch? Oh, gosh. Well, that was certainly one of them. I should remind everybody that David Hasselhoff was the star of Baywatch. Uh, that's just mainly for all the German listeners, because he's very popular <laughs> in Germany. So this should be episode 473 or so, and there have only been about five other books like yours that are in fable or, or parable format. And I... I will include links to those interviews on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Also, there have been two other books on the show in the past specifically about using stories in sales, which I will also include links to on the same page. So every episode, there's always a first-time listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and if this is your first time listening to the show Welcome. I'm delighted you're here. Let's connect on LinkedIn. Let me know if I can recommend any books for you. But you're probably wondering, wait a minute, marketing book podcast? What's a book about sales doing on the marketing book podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. Hmm. And uh, there have been over 60 books featured on the show over the years. And I feel very strong. This is probably one of my two biggest uh, hobby horse uh, soapbox, pet pee, whatever you want to call it, which is that the most successful marketers have a deep understanding of sales, how mm. to sell, what the salespeople are doing, and more importantly, the mental process, the objections, the psychology of what the buyers are thinking. And also, there have been a number of authors on the show over the years who've talked about how if you're a marketer and you are not spending time with your sales folks at least once a month, you are at risk of being considered rightly or wrongly, as someone who is an arts and crafts party planner who works in the Make It Pretty department. So that's why I just love books about sales, and uh, that's why I was very excited to be able to um, interview you about this. So 
The book is only about 150 pages long, and it has a foreword by the legendary Eric Qualman, who is an author, and he lives there in Austin, Texas, uh, like you. And yep. I also noticed he has a uh, degree from the University of Texas. And I will not play that sound effect again, just because <laughs> I don't want to run off all the UT grads. But I went to high school in San Antonio, so I know way too much about UT. So I want to read an excerpt from the very beginning in two places, uh, set the stage, and then uh, talk about this unique book. So this is on page 11. You write, Storytelling has been around at least since humans lived in caves. Our ancestors would sit around the glow of fires and tell stories. More recently, we sit around the glow of PowerPoint slides. (laughs) Hopefully, we are hearing good stories too, rather than just seeing crowded slides with facts and figures that nobody can read or will remember. The myth is that people make decisions about what to buy or who to hire based on logical facts. This myth causes many people to think that soft skills, such as storytelling, listening, and being empathetic, are not worth investing their time or energy. The old way of selling or persuading, was to push out facts and data to convince people you have the best product or service. We have seen that this does not cause anyone to change their mind in business, in politics, or in their personal life. And then on the next page, you write, Yet in sales in the business world, so many executives ignore these human examples of the power of storytelling and revert to the old way of self-promotion. The first mistake is that they forget they are not invited into a pitch and tell potential buyers how great they are. But they are instead invited in to help them solve some type of problem that has a sense of urgency to it. The problem could be anything from a way to break through the noise of a crowded marketplace with a new launch or how to find a product that makes a hospital more productive and deliver better patient outcomes during surgery. Whether you are a hospital executive, surgeon, lawyer, architect, financial services provider, or creator of the latest product using state-of-the-art technology, you need to figure out a way to stand out and command a premium price. Those who present facts are seen as a commodity and cause people to go into analysis paralysis, which is when an individual can't make a decision because they continue to analyze all the facts. Those who tell stories tap into the part of the buyer's brains that can sum up the concept and make a decision. So, John, Was writing this book in story format more difficult than writing your previous books? Yes, it really was a challenge because when you create a fable, um, the tale is spelled T-A-L-E to give people like a fairy tale vibe that, oh, this might be a business fable when the sale is in the tale. Mm Mm-hmm. I had to create characters, and when I narrated it for Audible, I had to change my voice depending on who was <laughs> saying, you know, what? There's a small child is one of the uh, minor characters in the story, and so I had to really do what I teach, which is the exposition of pulling people into this particular fable, this uh, story. That, you know, the details of making them feel like they were in the room and eavesdropping in on the conversations was a different skill that I had never um, had to do when I was writing a traditional business book. Well, I would think it would be much more difficult. And maybe that's why only, what, this might only be the sixth book (laughs) out of about 475 that's on. But let me tell you something about the proof in the pudding. Mm. I picked this book up a couple days ago to, to start reading it, to prepare for this conversation. I was 85 pages in when suddenly I realized I had football games to be watching. <laughs> there was a great big uh, metaphorical fish hook in. I, I got into it. And I, I, I didn't want to stop. So good on That's you, cool. good sir. Yes. Well, when we tell a story in person or in a book that people want to know what's coming up next, and there's a little, as you alluded to, an open loop, we see this all the time in television shows on the next episode of – or even movies have sequels and you're left with a cliffhanger. That's what keeps people intrigued. I have people create an open loop when I'm being introduced to give a keynote talk on storytelling. Uh-huh. And the introduction when I'm when someone's introducing me before I go on stage is, John uh, met Michael Phelps and he has a story that he's going to share with us, the, a lesson he learned that we can use. 
And did so, you have to pull him out of the pool and rescue him? Not, not quite. I'm happy to share that story, but that does create an open loop. So mm -hmm. even an open loop and an introduction before I even take the stage is a really great use of storytelling because then people are listening to my story going, I wonder when he's going to get to the Michael Phelps story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, without giving away every detail of the story, including what I thought was a surprise ending, honestly, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, tell us about the story, particularly the protagonist and his challenges. And then uh, perhaps we can talk about some of the specifics of storytelling that help, you know, form the basis of the, of the plot. Well, I wanted to, I said it here in Austin because, so the book is also a little bit of a love letter to Austin. Some of the places that the characters are meeting like Mozart's um, cafe by the lake or uh, the Zilker park. I wanted to make people who've been to Austin or live in Austin say, oh my gosh, I know exactly where that is because that's part of good storytelling is the exposition. And I picked um, a character who was struggling with the old way of selling and didn't know why these old ways weren't working anymore until another character comes in, which happens to be a woman. All of that was intentional that would teach him step-by-step, step, almost like a typical hero's journey uh -huh. that there's a, a Yoda in Star Wars, if you will, yep. guiding you along step-by-step step of, um, you know, the force is in you. You have the power to learn how to tell stories and you've got to be better at this. That was Diane and the main character yes. is Ben. Yep. And then one of the, you know, things that people often say to me is, oh, I kept waiting for there to be, you know, most people assume if you have a male and a female in a work situation and it's a story that there's going to be some romance involved. Oh, so did I. I've got a note to ask you about that. Yes. Oh, man. you had That was another thing you had me going on, and I'm wondering uh -huh. if you do a subsequent one, maybe there's <laughs> a little... <laughs> yes. So, you know, those kinds of issues, obviously, in the workplace happen a lot. But, you know, one of my favorite movies is When Harry Met Sally. Do you yes, remember? yes. And can men and women be friends? Yes. And, or is there always this underlying, assuming everyone's heterosexual, um, or is there always this underlining, you know, thread going on? And then especially in the workplace. So I thought it would be an interesting twist to have a female be a mentor without, of course, any of the messiness that human resources gets. Right. Because I was primed and ready for some sexual tension between uh, yeah. Ben and Diane. And you left right. me uh, yet yet another right. cliffhanger. So. Well, that's why one of my favorite TV shows, Will and Grace, is so popular. Because, you know, a lot of straight women love having gay men as their best friend. Because there isn't that sexual tension. Oh, right. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I thought it was yeah. Diane was the perfect Yoda. She had an she knew an she was an engineer, right? Yes. And she, but she had a lot of uh, soft skills in sales, and I think that there's also a a message there for all those technical engineering mm -hmm. types. So a, a bit of an inspiration there. Yes. Well, that tends to be the typical audience that I get up in front of, and so I wanted them to see themselves in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and I also noted. Don't think I didn't notice these things, Mister Livesey. <laughs> Ben's sister is named Barbara, and that's your sister's name, right? It is indeed. Yes, a little uh, tribute to my own sister. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a whole sales in the tail trivia. Uh, board game ah. that I'm working on. I'll have to get your permission, of course. But uh, yes. yeah, yeah. There's a lot of really uh, kind of unimportant uh, information that's clogged up in my hard drive, and it includes things like that. <laughs> Nothing terribly useful. But I thought it was nice that you mentioned your sister in that way. So, in addition to salespeople, obviously, uh, talk about who else this book is for. And I, I kind of say that mm -hmm. because I don't want people to think, "Oh no, I'm a marketer, or I'm a business owner, right. or I'm a lawyer. I don't need to do this." Well, to your point earlier, when marketing and sales are on the same page, then things really soar. If you run a marketing department or your marketing messages in a silo and aren't getting feedback, not just from your target audience, but from the salespeople. Uh, recently, I was talking to a company that's in the medical supply division, and both the marketing and the salespeople were on the call prepping me for my upcoming keynote. And... Marketing would say, you know, we worked really hard to create some good, hot leads for the sales department. 
And so one of the first questions that I asked was, ooh, could you send me what those leads look like or what the messaging is that attracts the right kind of target audience? Mm-hmm. And then I'm interviewing the salespeople at different skills level, the top, the middle, and sort of at the bottom to see what their perception and challenges are in that. And then I'm interviewing the end user, which happens to be doctors at this case, of um, what is resonating with you that the salespeople are saying and what's resonating with you in the marketing uh, messaging that you thought, oh, that seems like you're in my head because I believe the best marketing messages are the ones that people say, wow, it's like they are reading my thoughts. This is what's keeping me up at night and I'm intrigued to click and open and read and possibly you know, request information or an appointment. So it's it, they worked hand in hand. Oh, they'd worked successfully hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. That's a great description of how good your marketing message should be. And when somebody thinks you're part of the NSA, <laughs> where yeah. they, they they think that you've been reading their mind or or whatever, or um, Alexa is sending them information. Yeah, right, right. And there's an author who's been on the show several times named uh, Jeb Blunt, who you may have run into. He's written a lot of sales books and he's a speaker mm-hmm. and. I was amazed a few years back when I was interviewing him, he explained that he gets more leads from marketing people than from salespeople. In other words, there are so many companies where the marketing people are really doing a pretty admirable job, but a lot of it breaks down at the sales process, (laughs) and they're the ones that are trying to bring in some help for the sales team. I I thought that was great. And and, And I've later sort of realized that or I've come to the conclusion that a lot of companies that think they have a marketing problem, actually, I think they have more of a sales problem and they just need a little bit of marketing help. There's so mm-hmm. much that's done well and then it breaks down at in the sales experience. Have you seen that? Well, I've seen finger pointing between the departments oh. trying to justify why sales aren't up or revenue's not up. And, you know, the best lead in the world can't, be foolproof if the salesperson is pushing out facts and figures and not asking any questions and not telling any stories, your, your closing rate, your win rate is not going to be what it needs to be. And so of course, some of the salespeople who don't have self-awareness and don't want to take responsibility for their skill sets, not being where they need to be, will go, Oh, these leads suck, right? That's a problem. (laughs) That's what the problem, that's not me. And then the marketing people go, no, and if anybody stinks, it's you. You're not close. These are, anybody could close these. The monkey could get this person to say yes. So, you know, once you start in that adversarial role, it's all downhill. The reverse of that is, as you said, marketing's talking with sales. What are you hearing? What are the concerns? Let's really get on the same page about what our unique benefit is and what differentiates us from competitors so that when somebody sees an ad, here's a commercial, whatever it is, that what intrigues them to want to know more is the same thing that's coming out of your mouth as to, yes, you were intrigued about this, or this is a problem you're suffering with, uh, and we have the solution for it, as opposed to there's a complete disconnect. And like, for example, um, let's say you're buying a car, And you see a commercial for a car and you go, wow, that car looks really cool and fun. And I sort of, it fits who I see myself as. And then you go to the dealership and the dealership is kind of dumpy and there's paint chips and like, where's the glamour from the TV commercial? This isn't me at all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then you start talking to the salesperson and they're just talking about, you know, gas miles per gallon or something really boring. Not, not at all what the feeling was in the commercial. So there's an example of it not working. Yeah. And there's more questions about if you're going to finance or not <laughs> versus, versus what your needs are uh, yes. as a buyer. Yeah. Well, let's get on to uh, storytelling. Uh, many people tell you they believe that some people are natural born storytellers mm-hmm. and some are not. And you write that the people who say this are usually in the camp of not feeling like they are natural-born storytellers. What do you have to say to them? I say, good news. You do not have to be a gifted athlete or a gifted singer to become a gifted storyteller. It's in our DNA. As you were saying, we we used to sit around the glow of campfires when we all lived in caves. And our brains are wired for storytelling 
And once you understand the need and the importance for it, you can, with a little bit of effort, learn the structure of what makes a good story versus a great story. And I tell people, even if you think you are a good storyteller, I have some tips to make you a great storyteller. And that is all determined by whether or not somebody sees themselves in your story. Because the minute that happens, you are no longer this pushy salesperson. The story does all the work for you and pulls people in. The people who think they are great storytellers, it almost makes me wonder if that's actually more work for John Levesay to have to do to deal with. Well, anybody who's, quote, not coachable and doesn't think there's any <laughs> right. different yes. is always a challenge. Yeah. Uh, but surprisingly, I've had people say, you know, I thought I was a good storyteller, but I didn't know how to tell a story that other people would see themselves in. They, I love to listen to myself talk, so is, doesn't that make me a good storyteller? And I'm like, no, not necessarily. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So you, you also write that those salespeople who come into a pitch or an interview or a, a bake-off, as you call it, where they are in the, let's say, the final three against right. their competitors – those who tell the stories are the ones who typically win the sale. That almost right. sounds uh, like a, it could be an overpromise. Why is that? <laughs> Part of it is we're wired. We buy things emotionally and then back it up with logic. Even the most expensive, complicated technical product is still an emotional decision backed up with logic. And therefore, when people go in, let's say you're in the final three, and you come in and you just push out a bunch of facts and figures and your competitors do the same thing. Then there's the meeting after the meeting and everyone sits around and says, well, we heard three different pitches, presentations. What do you think? And they go, well, they all kind of sound the same. I guess we should go with the cheapest. And 99% of my clients do not have the cheapest products. So that's not the goal. But if you're the one that told a story, that's three things, clear, concise, and compelling, then you are the one that's going to win because they can, rem why does it need to be clear? Well, if it's a bunch of acronyms, the confused mind always says no, and no one's going to tell you they're confused. Their ego won't let them. It needs to be concise enough that they can remember it for the meeting after the meeting to say, you know, Douglas told us this amazing story of another kind of client that sounds a lot like us. And I think that's the journey we want to go on. And then it has to be compelling because the emotion has to be there. If the stakes aren't high in the story, nobody cares about the story. So clear, concise, and compelling, then that creates your brand ambassadors, internal champions, whatever you want to call them, that are in that second meeting saying, here's a story I heard in the presentation that makes me want to pick them. And that may be the only thing that they carried out. <laughs> From yes. the meeting. Oh, we all have the stats of how people forget 40% of what you said 20 seconds after you said it. Mm -hmm. But if you tell a story, it gets filed away in a different part of your brain. Right, right. So uh, as we've clearly established, you were a lifeguard once. Yes. And uh, you write about how most companies are drowning in a mm. sea of sameness. Now, my experience is that most people will say, yeah, I suppose that's true, Douglas, but you see, we're different, you know. Can you remind people about this, the vastness of this sea of sameness? I mean, it, it seems almost as like people don't realize just how similar they appear to all their competitors. Well, if you've ever been on the receiving end of listening to presentations, or if you just do your due diligence and look, go to your competitors' websites, you will see the vast majority of them have very similar mission and value statements. We believe in diversity or sustainability or we're a people-centered place or blah, 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 blah. Right? And like, let me interject, all that's about you. Yes. <laughs> Who should it be about? The client, yes. Yeah, yeah. So oh. that part is, you know, or we're the biggest, so therefore you must want to work with us because we're so great. Uh -huh. um, that sameness quality is where people get lost or they start – competing with statistics. Well, our equipment makes a surgery go 20% faster. Ours makes it go 30% faster. And you're just, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's, again, there's no emotional connection there. So that's an example of the sea of sameness. Once you start getting people to, well, our price is 5% less than that person. Don't you want to buy this instead of that? You know, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that when marketers are able to illustrate 
uh, and not in a mean way, but showing how they are currently perceived the same as their competition, they usually get a little bit of traction saying, now you see, I'm not criticizing, this is an observation, not a criticism, but look at this. And then the the organization starts to get a better sense that, oh, well, maybe we should try to change it up. So let me ask you about two real specific things that you have uh, earlier in the book. The 555 rule. I love it. I love Thank it. What, what is the 555 rule? Well, Douglas, in life, we're going to get discouraged, disappointed, maybe even betrayed. And the 555 rule is something that I came up to help make other people more resilient because it's all about how fast we get back up mm-hmm. when life knocks us down, whether it's somebody cutting us off in traffic all the way up to getting a no on a big project you worked hard on all the way to things in your own personal life. And when you start to think of yourself as the movie director of your own life, you can zoom out and say, will this matter in five minutes? How about five hours from now? How about five days from now? If you're still upset five days after somebody cut you off in traffic, you're not leading a very happy life. Mm. And so the ability to let go of disappointment and distractions and frustrations faster so you can be fresh and in the moment is the key. So I have given this as a takeaway to a lot of my audiences, and it becomes part of their culture. Someone will start complaining about something that somebody said or did six months ago, either internally or externally, or bringing up a time where they blew it. Um, and you're like, you need to five, five, five that. Let that go. Right? And now I say, you know, some people will say, well, five days from now, I'm still upset. But let's say you lose an account, right? You, sure. You, you don't, you, sales is a rejection. Um, some, and how are we going to deal with that? Well, should we complain about it for five hours or five minutes? Okay, we're going to give ourselves five hours to really complain about this. And then we're going to not talk about it anymore. Yeah. Uh, and when my dad passed away a few years back, I wish I'd had this tool because you can also use it for big things like that. So five days from now, yeah, I'm still devastated. So if I could go back to my younger self, I would say, how about five weeks, five months, five years from now? So Looking back five years from now, I could go back to my younger self and say, yeah, you're still going to miss your dad, but I promise you five years from now, you won't be this sad. Oh, boy, I can relate to that. I loved it. I had never seen this idea before, perhaps because (laughs) you just told us that you actually came up with this. So let me ask you one other one. Hmm. What does it mean to play the as soon as game? (laughs) I played this from day one. I, You know, some people have always had a struggle staying in the moment. And I was one of those people. And I would always think to myself, well, as soon as I get to college, I'll be happy. And out of this boring suburban life I'm in, or then as soon as I graduate and move to California, I'll be happy. Or as soon as I get this great big job, or as soon as I get this relationship, as soon as I get this car, this house, this promotion, it's endless. I'm never happy where I am. And that was such an aha for me of the only place there's any peace of mind is in the present moment. We can look back at the past and either have happy memories or regrets or the future, which during the pandemic for me personally was that unknown of how long it was going to last and live events were canceled and will I ever be on stage again Mm -hmm. and all that anxiety and stress. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not in the moment. I'm making up a horror movie of what my future is going to be. And as soon as I get back on stage, I'll be happy and my money will be back and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, or not. Maybe it will. <laughs> you have to be in this moment. Right now, you're not able to go to see a live theater or speak in a convention center. So and things are closed. So what can you do? I guess I could take a walk in the park with my dog. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, let's get back to, you know, what does bring you joy? If it's not the things that you have always been looking for outside stimulus to make you happy. So that's the as soon as game. So when I work with a lot of young people, I'm always advising them. on, Oh man, don't get stuck in that trap of as soon as this happens, then I'll finally be happy because it's always out of your grasp and you're not enjoying the moment. Mm, I loved it. And you mentioned your dog. Is that Pepe, your King Charles Spaniel? Yes. This is a dog-friendly podcast. I love it. And there's one asleep 
uh, behind me right now on the floor. Yes. He's the executive producer of the Marketing <laughs> Book Podcast. And like many listeners, he he sleeps through the interviews. <laughs> so let's talk about soft skills. You write that, mm-hmm. and I touched on this earlier, you, people don't generally take soft skills as seriously as hard skills. Right. Uh, unlike Diane, <laughs> people don't think they're as important. They think that the hard skills are the most important thing and someone needs to do just they just need to do the job well. What do you have to say to those listeners with that mindset of, nah, I don't need that. I just need, you know, I need to know, I need, I need to know how to be a really awesome civil engineer, or I need to know how to be a really well, awesome right. intellectual property lawyer. Well, again, that's table stakes. That's the commodity. Everyone has the same skill set. What's going to differentiate you and get you promoted, get you win new business is your ability to have emotional intelligence. You have a great IQ. You know how to be a lawyer, architect, doctor, whatever. But what about your ability to listen and show empathy and tell a story? Because when you have all three of those working, that's when the emotional connection happens. There's been research that doctors that have really bad bedside manner are the ones that get sued. Right. When yeah. Um, recent AI data, 90% of patients would prefer to get their diagnosis from artificial intelligence because most doctors' bedside manner is so bad. Mm. How sad is that? Yeah. Oh, well, it's, it's, it's not good. And there's a, there's a lesson there. I want to mention this one listener. I won't say his name, but he, he's a, a lawyer friend of mine in Washington, DC, one of those high powered, you know, guys. Mm-hmm. And he listens to the show and he's been listening for, longer than I realized. And he uh, listens to the show and he picks up a lot of this. He's just, he just loves this sort of thing. He's already a really, really good, (laughs) good lawyer. And he has an engineering degree, but he chatted with me recently and he said, I am the one partner bringing in most of the business now. And he said, don't tell my colleagues. It's because I'm (laughs) listening, I'm listening to these interviews and buying the books and reaching out to the authors. So it's like, there's a guy who has, the hard skills uh, in spades, but he's right. focused on these other things. And he even uh, has talked about, you know, how, how to use a story and in, in, in a sales situation. And he's always in these situations where he's like, he, his firm and two others are always the last three. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, that, that it, it's so true. We hear about empathy a lot and particularly in sales. And I think it's really one of the most Im- important things in marketing mm-hmm. and sales, but explain how empathy actually makes you more likable. Mm. Well, the master at that is Tim Sanders, who wrote a book on it called The L Factor, The Likability Factor. Mm-hmm. And it was all based on research around doctors spend more time with patients they like, teachers spend more time with students they like, you're less likely to get laid off, regardless of seniority, if you're more likable. And so this ability... To increase your likability factor has to do with your empathy. The more you are able to show an understanding of what somebody else is struggling with, an example would be, let's say you're a salesperson, you're making a call, you're uh, getting off the elevator and you see the receptionist desk. Uh, There's two other reps, there's a FedEx and a UPS person there and the phones are ringing off the hook. You have couple different options and how you approach that reception desk. You could say, hey, I have a two o'clock appointment. It's, you know, 159. Or you could say, uh, sorry to bother you. I can see you're busy. Um, when you get a minute, let me know. Or you could say, wow, you must feel like an air traffic controller. Let me know when all the other planes land. So there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. I'm sorry to bother you is sort of the sympathetic thing. It's better than the arrogant thing. But the empathy is, you must feel like an air traffic controller. And the person looks up and goes, oh my God, I do at the moment. Um, And then you go and make your presentation and you say goodbye and say goodbye to the receptionist. And then the decision maker um, says to the receptionist, um, who's next? And the receptionist says, I don't care who's next. You should hire that person. Yes. Yes. Oh, it's so true. And a lot of times I think that empathy is confused with sorrow or compassion or pity. And it's not that. It's really your ability to understand, to put yourself in their shoes, like you just described with that uh, busy receptionist. So 
I want to ask you about another thing in the book here, which is kind of what I'm doing in this interview, but I want to quote uh, Dale Carnegie, who was not in the book, but it's one of my favorite quotes from him, and it was, when dealing with people, let us remember we are not dealing with creatures of logic. We are dealing mm. with creatures of emotion, creatures bristling with prejudices and motivated by pride and vanity. So I'm, I'm at page 58 here, and most listeners will have heard of the expression that it's important to be known, liked, and trusted. Known, liked, yes. and trusted. It's, it's mentioned all the time. It's important. But in the story, Ben, the protagonist, learns that rather than know, like, and trust, it's really should be trust, like, and know, mm-hmm. or start with the gut, then the heart, then the head. Explain what's going on there. Well, if you have this belief, and you've heard it a hundred times, oh, in order to get someone to hire you or buy from you, they have to know, like, and trust you. That causes a behavior of, oh, let me send you some more data. Let me follow up with one more. You don't know enough about me or my company or my product. Push, push, push. Mm -hmm. So if we flip the script and start with trust, which is literally a gut thing, is this safe to open this email? Um, is this safe to come on this podcast? Oh, you've interviewed other people that I know. Um, trust is literally transferred. And is this person making eye contact with me? All of that fight or flight response stuff has to be satiated before the person can even start to hear you. So that's the gut part. Then it moves to the heart part, which is, do I like you? And that's where the empathy comes in. The more likable you are, the more empathy you're showing. And then finally it gets to the head Still not the time to push out information because here is the unspoken question everybody has, Douglas, when they hear you present or pitch. Will this work for me? Mm. They might trust and like you, but if they don't think it's going to work for them, they're not going to buy. And that's where the power of storytelling comes in because when you've told a story that other people see themselves in, they go, oh, I could see how that would work for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so – there's a, a yet another thing from the book that I hadn't I was not familiar with this term. You write about perfectionism and progressionism. <laughs> the reason you haven't heard of that term is I made that word. Oh, up. you see? That tingling means it's working, Mr. Levisay. What yeah. is a progressionist? Well, in our life, it's not enough to tell people don't do this. Let go of being a perfectionist. You need to give people something to substitute it with. And so I invite people to say Let's embrace progressionism. And they, what is that word? Well, we're wired to celebrate progress. Fitbit, you took this many steps today. Video games, congratulations, you're at the new level. So I work with my clients when I'm giving their talks on the one thing I want you to do after this talk is your Monday morning meetings. We're going around and celebrating progress, not black and white thinking all or nothing. Did we make a sale? Yes or no? No. Bad you, move on. Yes, good you, move on. Yes, mm-hmm. no, yes, no. It's like, what progress have you made since the last meeting? Well, we finally got an appointment. We, we're, it's taken two months, but we've made some progress. Great, we're celebrating that. So that's what I mean by progressionism. Yes, like uh, Ben's boss, Julie. <laughs> yes, oh my goodness. So progressionism, there you go. Now, uh, one of the most important things in here, which I just – I loved was, uh, if you could, explain the difference between a case study Uh, and a case story. Again, something that's been around for decades. Here's our case study of other clients we've helped, and it's got a lot of facts and figures I'm sure you're just going to be so enthralled with. Right, and let me back that up. Uh, Let me add to that, John. There was a a guest on the show a couple times, Andy Cressadina, author of Content chemistry, and in his book, he explains that if you want if you want to predict what is the lowest uh, traffic page on your website, call it the mm-hmm. testimonials page. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it, 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 again because somebody doesn't see themselves in it. Yes, yes. So a case so, story, case stories, different situation. Uh, most people, if they're doing any kind of talk about other clients they've helped. It's, well, here's what they were struggling with. They jump right into the problem. And I believe we need to have exposition like you're a journalist. The who, what, where, when. You have to paint the picture. Was this six months ago, six days ago, six years ago? Um, What's this person's name? What's their title? What kind of company are they working in? 
we have to get a sense of context before we're in the story. And then the second part of it is the problem. And the better you describe the problem, the more they think you have your solution. And it's also not enough to just have one problem. You need to dig deep and find out, okay, what else? When I work with clients and I'll say, what is the biggest problem that you have? They're like, well, it's this. And I will just say this two simple word question. Anything else you're struggling with? Anything else? Anything else? Well, yes, actually. And they start unraveling and revealing other problems that aren't at the first thing. And this is so valuable because if you go to therapy with your partner and you say, oh, the romance is gone. And you, the therapist has been trained to go, that's what's called the presenting problem. You're coming to therapy because the romance has gone in your relationship. The therapist knows it's not about Douglas bringing flowers home to his wife that's going to fix the day. So they keep asking more questions. And it turns out there's hurt feelings. There's a lack of trust. There's some resentment. That's what's caused the romance to go away. So as marketers and salespeople, it's up to us to dig deeper than just the initial presenting problem. That will give you more insights to provide better solutions. If you just solve the initial problem, you're not going to be, you're drowning in that sea of sameness. So you say, okay, one problem is this, but when we worked with the client, we also found two more problems as if that first one wasn't bad enough. And then you go into your solutions and that's what helps justify the value for your fees is that you're typically solving more than one problem. And then the magic fourth part of any good story is the resolution. Mm. That's what most stories don't have. What is life like for this client a month, six months, even a year after they've bought your product or hired you? Imagine if in The Wizard of Oz, the movie ended when Dorothy got in the plane to go back to Kansas. The end. Boop. But no, that's... There's this wonderful resolution scene where she's in bed going, oh, my God, I appreciate everybody. There's no place like home. And you were there and you were there. That's why that story is a classic. Oh, I love it. I love it. Anything else? Anything else? Oh, that's solid gold right there. Mm -hmm. So let's jump ahead to something else that I know is going to be of interest to all the salespeople. Always be closing. (laughs) You write a bit about closing which uh, I know I just got every salesperson's attention there. You write that storytelling makes closing sales as easy as landing a plane on a clear day. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, the analogy really holds up. In fact, I'm getting ready to speak at uh, a sales meeting that their theme is flying high and they're going to do a whole Top Gun montage. And I said, so if you think about a pilot, a pilot does a checklist before they get in the cockpit. They go around the plane. They've got a whole list. Do salespeople do that same kind of prep before they make a sales call? The ones that do are better at getting results. Then is the buyer in the cockpit with you as a co-pilot or are they in the back of the plane? Or worse, is the buyer flying the plane and you're in the back of the plane? <laughs> Be honest, people. Yeah. So... Then when it comes to the landing, when I flew from um, Nashville back home to uh, Austin the other night, nobody, they make the announcement, we're now landing in Austin. Nobody stands up, Douglas, and says, what? We're landing? I thought we were just going to fly around forever. (laughs) And how many conversations are like that? Well, we're just going to keep talking and talking and we're never going to close the sale. We're just going to just keep having conversations and negotiating back and forth. When you have a flight plan, and you know where you're going, and the buyer agrees before you even start the journey. If we do A, B, and C, we're going to have a deal, yes? Then that's why landing the plane is smooth. Not that you put it on autopilot, but it's not unexpected. You close or you hit the bricks. So, John, let's go a little bit further. Talk about how sales are lost at the beginning of the process, not Mm. at the end when a lot of people think it happens. Yes, well, the always be closing clip that you just played. Which yeah, is which is, which is I, I play that in a cautionary way. I don't want listeners to do that. <laughs> no. I, re, in fact, have flipped that script, and I went from ABC to ABK, always be kind. Oh, that's right. Yes. That played a big role in the story. Yes. And that oh. starts with how we talk to ourselves. 
Are we saying mean, critical things that we would never say to somebody else before we even start the conversation? I'm never going to get this sale. Somebody else is better than me. My product's not good. Blah, 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 blah. Right? That's why you can lose the sale at the beginning before you even start. Also, if you have a conversation with someone and you're starting to get agreement at the beginning of the process and they trust you and like you and you're telling stories, that they, it, it doesn't seem like it's out of the blue. But if you're one person at the beginning of the presentation and then all of a sudden you're like, ooh, it's time to close and you become a different person, you lose the sale because where's the authenticity? Where's the trust that you built? So getting that agreement up front of, you know, we don't always, this may not be for you. I'm going to ask some questions to see if it, people are taken aback by that. The oh, I know. I see their body language change. You're like, oh, you're not going to push something down my throat? This may not be a fit for you. You may, you know, got to be this tall to ride the ride at Disneyland. You may not be this tall. Right. And it's okay. We're not for everybody. Yeah. Man, does that really show? It's like dating. You know, nobody, you can smell desperation on people, whether it's dating or selling something. Yeah. And in sales, it's called commission breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I, I always like to say no is my second favorite word. I always get a good reaction. Like, you know, let's, let's talk next week. And uh, no is my second favorite word. It's not going to hurt my feelings. Well, a no now isn't no forever. That's the one thing. Yes, that's, oh, gosh. We keep going back to that, that well-written story. So <laughs> Joseph Campbell's monomyth, which I'm sure you have memorized, it, you know, it <laughs> has like 17 steps of the hero's journey. Yeah. I, I can't remember all those steps, so don't quiz me on it. But mm-hmm. like you started to touch on this. You have boiled it down to just four, and I thank yeah. you for that. I mean, it's so yeah. simple that even a knuckleheaded podcast host can start to understand us. And they are, let me just recap what they are, just so people understand, because there's one that I think that really gets missed a lot, but I may be wrong. The, you said the exposition, yep. that's the first one. That's where you paint the picture of who, what, and where, Correct. but not a hundred details, <laughs> just the ones that you need. Yeah, right. and, and then the problem, which mm-hmm. is, it's where you describe the problem someone else faced. So the, that's where the client sees themselves in the story. Yep. And then the solution is where you tell a story that mm-hmm. shows you overcoming an obstacle, obstacle and growing, going an extra mile for the client. And the resolution answers the questions like, you know, what what's it like after they buy the product? Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm wondering is, I think you started touching this, is it the solution that people tend to skip over? In other words, they go, this is the problem, and this was the solution. They don't take them through the solution, which it seems to me that's where a lot of the emotion could be. Well, they don't take them... They forget, they don't even know there is such a thing as a resolution to the story. They think the story ends with the solution. And that, and then we, you know, redid the office or we, you know, whatever the, whatever they're selling. Let, let's give an example. I think if we give an example yeah. and then we can break it down by the different sections, it will start to make a little more sense. So Olympus, the camera company makes medical supplies and they make a scope and they engaged me to speak to their team and they said, John, we have a piece of equipment that makes surgeries go 30% faster. And we say that fact to the doctors and we're so surprised that they're not buying it more because it's so logical. And I said, well, people are buying emotionally, even a doctor, even a hospital, 30%. And so here's the story that we crafted that has changed everything. Imagine how happy Dr. Higgins was down at Long Beach Memorial six months ago using our equipment and he could go out to the patient's family in the waiting room an hour earlier than expected. And if you've ever waited for someone you love to come out of surgery, you know every minute feels like an hour. Mm. And the doctor turns, comes to the family and says, good news, the scope shows they don't have cancer, they're going to be fine. And then turns to the rep and says, you know, this is why I became a doctor for moments like this. And now that rep tells that case story to another doctor at another hospital who sees himself in it and says, you know what? That's why I became a doctor. Mm. I want your equipment too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boom. So Olympus uh. said, oh, that gives us chills. Not only are we not telling a story, it never occurred to us to make a patient's family a character in the story. So let me break down the structure of that story, how I came up with crafting that for them. So the exposition is we know the doctor's name. We know it's, you know, uh, what hospital it's in, all that stuff. We've got, we painted the picture. Then the problem, 
you know, I said, so what does 30% faster even mean? They said, well, normally it's three hours, 30% faster, it's two. I said, okay, so let's make a list of who benefits from this being an hour faster. Well, the doctor's on his feet less, okay. The hospital maybe can squeeze in another surgery, make money. And then I said, hey, what about the patient's family? I had to wait with my mom when my sister was having surgery. Oh, so that had the most emotional component to it. So that's why that got put in there. And then you see, I used the technique of pulling you into the story, Douglas, when I said, if you've ever had to wait for someone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even if you haven't, you could imagine it or you know somebody's had to go through that. Yeah. So then we get to the solution where the doctor comes out and says, good news, the scope shows are fine. If the story just ended there, it would be okay. It certainly wouldn't tug at the heartstrings as much as it does when the resolution part is the doctor saying, this is why I became a doctor. And that's what pulls other doctors into the story. I love it. I love it. Thanks. So we've talked about marriage counseling. Yes. Now let's move on. You, you talk about this concept called the friend zone. And mm-hmm. uh, it harkens back to Harry Met Sally. You write, once you're in the friend zone with a girl, yeah. you can never get out of it. So Poor what, boy. Okay, right. Once you're in the friend zone, you can never get out of it. What is the friend zone in love and sales? Well, I created a whole empathy ladder. And so if you start at the bottom of that ladder, it's when you're invisible. Like you probably never had this happen, but most when I was single and young, I'd go to a party and I'd see somebody I was attracted to. They wouldn't even know I was in the room. I might as well be invisible. And sometimes in our business, they've never heard of us or our company, or they don't know we do something that we do. We're invisible. Then you move up to insignificant. And honestly, in dating, I don't know what's worse, invisible (laughs) or insignificant. Uh, But let's say you're trying to sell life insurance and you're talking to a 20-year-old. They're like, that's insignificant to me. I'm not doing that. Okay. Then we get to interesting. So you're at this party and you say, you know, you say something funny or witty and they go, oh, I'm interested to talk to you. I'm not interested in going out yet. Back in the business scenario, you say something that they go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Why don't you send me some information? And then you get ghosted. It's the friend zone at work. You never hear from them again, or they just want to keep having conversations. And so the way, and everyone who's ever been in sales has been in that situation. Right. And you get like a lifetime subscription to their voicemail. Yeah. That's fine. Or you t- tell your boss, hey, I think I'm, gonna get, you know, I'm putting that down on my projections. They said they were interested. It's looking good, boss. Look at that pipeline. So how do we get out of the friend zone at work? We, The next rung up is intriguing. Back in the dating scenario, maybe you say, well, I'm going to pick you up in a town car. There'll be champagne, roses. Ooh, I'm intrigued. Or you come up with something to the client and you say, well, what if we did this? And I have an example of a story of that if you want to hear it. They go, oh, I'm intrigued. Tell me more. How would that work? And then finally, you get up to irresistible. And this is when you're dating somebody. You can't stop thinking about them. You're texting them all the time. And in business, it's the irresistible rung where clients love us. They give us testimonials and we love them. But like any relationship, you can start to take it for granted. So I work with my clients to make sure that we're keeping those irresistible clients feeling that way and not taken for granted. And so they don't leave or go to the competition. What's the story about uh, breaking loose here? Because that sounds like one that I hear about all the time where they think they're just in a kind of a, not just the friend zone, it's the dead zone. The dead zone. Well, when I was selling advertising for Condé Nast, um, Speedo was in my territory and they had a line of sportswear coming out and I was selling for ads for a fashion magazine. And I said, Hey, will you advertise that in my fashion magazine? And they said, Hey, no, uh, we're going to put it in a fitness magazine. And I said, two magic words. What if we treated your sportswear like it was high fashion and we could have a fashion show around a swimming pool and you could invite Michael Phelps because he's on your payroll during the Olympics. And I bet we get a lot of publicity if he showed up and we were doing something no one ever thought was a fashion show with sportswear around a pool. They said, oh, we're intrigued. What would that look like? And eventually I got them to say yes and give me the advertising. And then more importantly for me as a former lifeguard, I got to meet Michael Phelps. Right. So there's, there's the what if and the intriguing example and the little hint of the Michael Phelps story. Mm, what if, what if that's right up there with anything else? 
Anything else? Oh, I love it. Two word questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we talked about case study versus case story. You also talk in the book about elevator pitch versus elevator story. Mm -hmm. Similar difference or uh, anyone that does have an elevator pitch, should they be, they, they should be rethinking this. I say, let's kill the elevator pitch right now. Let's say it's dead. It's boring. It's memorable. It sounds robotic. Or you don't have one at all. You go to a networking event and you go, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. I'm an architect. Mm-hmm. I'm a doctor. I'm a speaker. And the, the conversation dies. I teach people a five-step elevator story that intrigues people enough to say, ooh, that's interesting. Tell me more. So you start to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. That's the whole goal. Now, the first three steps, you don't even talk about yourself. That's the aha, right? Instead of going right to, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a whatever. Um, so the first step is just literally the phrase, you know how. Yes. That's how we have conversations with people. You know how this storm is hitting the Midwest right now is like freaky. It hasn't been this bad in 10 years, right? That's how you talk to your friends. So you start with, you know how. And then the second step is, who do you help? The more specific, the better. Mm-hmm. And the third step is, what are their problems? And you insert the word struggle to make them feel that. And then the final, the fourth step is, finally, you're talking about what you do. And then the fifth one is, again, that resolution. So here's my elevator story. You know how so many salespeople in tech and healthcare really struggle not to be seen as a commodity? And as if that's not bad enough, they're so tired of coming in second place when they pitch against competitors. Well, I'm known as the pitch whisperer, and I teach sales teams how to tell stories that make them revenue rock stars. There you go. And you very gracefully killed an elevator pitch. Yes. And people go, wait, what's a pitch whisperer? I know a horse whisperer. I even know a dog whisperer. Or they go, revenue rock star? That sounds great. What does that mean? How does that, what does that look like? It doesn't matter what they ask about, but those have been consciously planted in the elevator story to intrigue people enough to want to ask a question about something I've said. Yes. Don't think about saying I'm a lawyer. You need to start with, you know how. Exactly. Uh, I love Whatever it. your specialty is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, without giving anything away about uh, how this story ends, except I kind of hinted at <laughs> the uh, Ben and Diane thing, but I'm waiting for another book because I think there's some, uh, there might be a love connection down the road. I don't want to tell you how to write your books there, Mr. Livesey, but on the very last, uh, the second last paragraph of the of the book, you write, to be the best and stay on top, you must let go of the old way of selling and pushing out information. The new way of selling is to tell stories that pull people in and make you irresistible. Together, we will start using storytelling to become revenue rock stars. So, John, if le- readers took only one thing away from the book, just one, what would you hope it would be? That when you tell the best story, you are memorable and magnetic and win the sale. And part of that, I guess, is because people either aren't doing it or they're not doing it as well as they could be. Exactly. Well, what's one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book to get them thinking in the right direction? Start off every week by listing any progress you've made in both your personal and your professional life and start thinking of yourself as a progressionist. Ah. Oh! Boy, am I glad I asked that question. Yes, I love it. I love it. And yeah, you called me out. I said I'd never seen it before, and you say that's because you invented it. So uh, copyright John Livesey, uh, 2024, all rights reserved. So looking back, what books have most inspired your work and very successful career? Tim Sanders, again, recently wrote a book called Deal Storming. Yes, that's the one I interviewed him about. Oh, well, There you go. It's all about wow. collaboration. And, uh, you know, thinking outside of your little department to get everybody involved in making a deal happen. Mm. Wow. You know, uh, not to make this about me, Mr. Livesey, but (laughs) that Tim Sanders, he is one person who was a guest on the show. Yes. And a listener uh, heard the interview Mm -hmm. and uh, they hired him for a speaking gig. Yes, I Not, believe it. Well, he's a phenomenal speaker. I've heard yeah. him speak. Not that he sent me a bottle of wine or anything, but that's yeah. that's fine, Tim. I, you know, I, I, I've picked up the pieces of my shattered life and moved on. <laughs> so are there any recent or upcoming books you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yes. Ryan Estes has a book coming out that he co-wrote with his brother called Impact. And I love the name. And it's all about the impact you have on your clients and the impact you have with the people in your life. 
Well, terrific. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile, and so forth. Listeners, please reach out to John and congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Guests on the show love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. And if nothing else, share this interview or your thoughts about it on LinkedIn and tag us so we can thank you. And if you're listening on your smartphone, you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all the these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote. This is from page 15 and throughout the book. At the end of the day, whoever tells the best story wins the sale. The book is The Sale is in the Tale. The author is John Livesey. John, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. 